0: servants who had drawn the water knew that he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And especially these words, you have saved the best till now. Jesus was a guest at a celebration, a wedding banquet. And it reminds us that Jesus shared in the joys and in the sorrows of life. So often we associate Jesus with sad occasions. We associate him with trials and tribulations. But yet here he is in the midst of a wedding banquet. He's invited, his disciples are invited, his mother is there. And it reminds us, or it challenges us, do we include Jesus in our celebration times, our good times? Or do we only turn to him when the going gets rough? But here we have this scene, the opening of Jesus' preaching and teaching miracle, uh, preaching and teaching ministry, and he's in a place called Cana. Now, in clue, I was preaching this sermon, and I said Cana was not mentioned in the Old Testament, that's true. And that today, we're not really sure where Cana is. And one of the members of our congregation said, we know where Cana is, my uncle lives there. Um, so there is a modern-day Cana, but we're not sure whether modern-day Cana and biblical Cana are the same. But what we do know is that Cana was not a major place. It wasn't the Dundee of its age, it wasn't the Edinburgh of, uh, of, Ju- of Judea, it was a small place. And yet Jesus chose this small place and this wedding celebration of two unknown people to perform his first miracle, but the miracle itself should draw our attention to Jesus, because a miracle is a demonstration of two things it 's a demonstration of power, but it 's also a demonstration of glory now power power is the ability to do something now we can make certain things. Um, you take coffee or tea and you add sugar and milk to it and you mix it together, you're putting different things together and you're creating something different. You're creating sweet or coffee or milk or tea with, tea with milk. So we can mix things together. If you're a chemist, you can take a metal like sodium and you can take a gas like chlorine. And if you have a spark of some sort, then you'll have an explosion. And then ultimately you can get salt from sodium and from chloride. That's, that's a chemical reaction. But I'll challenge everyone here to go home and to fill a jar with water and to wait a period of time to see if that water will turn into wine because it will never happen. This is beyond the realms of chemistry. It's beyond the realms of physics. We simply cannot change one substance into another substance. You, yes, you, you can take grape juice. You can take some fermenting agent and you can give that time and that will eventually produce wine. But you can't take a jar of water and somehow, some way, make that into wine. It just simply will not happen. A hundred times out of a hundred, a thousand times out of a thousand, you try this experiment and you will simply not succeed. But the power that Jesus demonstrates is such that he can take something and make it something else. We can't explain this event by any means now or then apart from the fact that he has the power and the authority to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants. So there's power in this miracle, because we're told that the wine had run out, and we're told then that the, the servants were told by Jesus to fill the water jars, six large stone water jars, and they filled them to the brim with water. And the next thing we read is that the master of the banquet tries this liquid and it's no longer water, but it's wine. But the miracle demonstrates not only the power of Jesus, because that would be sufficient. If he changed water into wine, that would be a sufficient sign to show us his power and authority, but he does something more. He does something more by changing the water into fine wine. We're told that the custom of the day was that you would serve the good wine first, And after the guests had tasted the good wine, they really wouldn't know the difference, so then you would serve the cheaper wine later. That makes sense, because if you're conducting a wedding in Cana, you'd probably invite the whole village. So you've got a catering challenge here that you've got to make sure you've got food, you've got to make sure you've got enough to drink, and you've got to make sure that all the village can eat. And that reminds us of the culture of the day, because the culture of the day was such that if you did something good, that would reflect not just on you, but it would reflect on your family. Everybody connected to you would kind of bask in the glow of a success or an accomplishment that you did. But the opposite was true. If you did something bad, or if you were caught doing something bad, not only would you be held up for shame or for condemnation, but your whole family would be condemned because of your actions. So in the East, in the Middle East here, it was very much a culture where the whole family or the whole group shared in the joy or shared in the sorrow, shared in the success, or shared in the failure. And here was a failure. This young couple was getting married and they hadn't planned well. They hadn't provided enough wine. So this couple was going to begin their married life and everybody would remember the wedding and everybody would remember the couple and everybody would single them out and their families. Uh, They were the ones, they were the ones that threw the wedding banquet and they were the ones that didn't have enough wine. So you see how this day of joy would become a day of shame and this day of celebration would be a day of recrimination and, and, and blame. But something happened. Jesus was at this wedding banquet, and Jesus' mother drew his attention to the lack of wine, and Jesus' mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Even though Jesus' time had not yet come, even though Jesus was reluctant to demonstrate his glory, and as we'll see as you read through the Bible, in these very early chapters of Jesus' ministry, he often says to those who receive the benefit of his miracles, don't tell anybody. But they often did tell people so that his popularity grew and that he wasn't able to, to go about, uh, to, to go publicly because the people were just crushing against him. But Jesus' mother gave this good word of advice, and maybe we can remember this for ourselves, do whatever he tells you. If that is your guide in life, you're not going to go far wrong. If your guide in life is that you're going to do whatever Jesus tells you to do or avoid whatever Jesus tells you to avoid, you're not going to go far wrong in life. So Jesus' mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And they did exactly what Jesus told them. Even though it seemed ridiculous, the problem was no wine. And Jesus says, there's some big jars and we use those to wash our hands. Now I'd like you to fill those jars with water. Now the servants didn't respond by saying, we don't need water, we need wine. They simply did what Jesus told them to do. And when they had done it, Jesus said, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did. And the master tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He didn't realize the servants did. And then he calls the bridegroom aside and says, isn't it interesting? Jesus performs a miracle. Jesus does all the work. And who gets the credit? It's the bridegroom that gets the credit. Instead of getting the blame for no wine, instead of getting the shame for throwing a wedding banquet and not having enough food and drink, the bridegroom gets the credit for this great miracle. And doesn't that show us what Jesus has come to do? Jesus has come to take away the shame or the stigma that would be ours and instead give us a credit, give us a benefit, give us a blessing that doesn't belong to us but belongs to him. That's the gospel message illustrated, that he's come to take away the shame, and he's come to give us the credit. And the master of the banquet says, I've never seen anything like this before, because the standard is that everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now, wine is fermented grape juice. And in the United States, $12.99 will get you a gallon of Ernest and Julio Gallo's finest red wine. Now, that gallon of wine will produce the desired effect, and the next morning you can be assured that you'll have a splitting headache. But that gallon of wine at twelve ninety-nine will not qualify as fine wine. It'll be wine, but it's not choice wine. That would be the cheap wine, the cheap wine that you bring out late in the day. But let me tell you about another type of wine. 1945 was a good year, a good year for, for, for Bordeaux. And if you had the facilities, if you had the checkbook that had no limits, for only 22,000 pounds, 22,500 pounds, you could get a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 45. Now, if you can get your hands on because there's not many of them, and they're not available in ASDA, but you can buy this probably the finest wine of the 20th century. Now, you've got the Ernest & Julio Gallo gallon bottle. You've got Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. That's fine wine. That's the kind of wine you savor. That's the kind of wine you enjoy. And Jesus says that he's come to bring in a kingdom where we enjoy not bread and water, where we enjoy not cheap wine, but where he wants his people to enjoy the finest of good gifts. He wants us to enjoy life. So many people think that becoming a Christian means that you give up living. You give up fun. You give up joy. And Jesus said the actual, the opposite is true. When we come to know him, we come to know the meaning of life, we come to enjoy life in all of its fullness, we can get rid of the cheap wine that gives us the headache, and we can enjoy the fine wine that shows us what life is really meant to be. But the irony is, is that many people, Christians, have failed to realize the meaning of this miracle. They see the power of Jesus, they understand that he turned water into wine, but they don't really get The fine wine, they don't really get the saving the best till now. And the lives that they live are not lives of celebration. They're not lives of joy. People look at many Christians and see sadness and see limits rather than seeing joy and celebration. There's a club, a restaurant, it's called the 21 Club in New York City. And this restaurant has its own wine cellar. And you can, if you have the wherewithal, you can ask them to store your wine in their cellar. And in this cellar, they have the finest of wines stored. And I've seen a picture, and there's, there's the names next to each of the bottles. And there's wine belonging to Aristotle Onassis. And there's wine belonging to Joan Crawford. And there's wine belonging to Richard Nixon. The only problem is, Aristotle Onassis died in 1975, Joan Crawford died in 1977, and Richard Nixon died in 1994. They had fine wine that they never opened. They had these great bottles of vintage claret that they never drank. Now, is that you as a Christian, that Jesus wants to give you the best of the best? He wants to give you a super abundance of super wine, Because these six stone water jars would essentially be our equivalent of a thousand bottles of wine Plenty of fine wine for everyone to enjoy this great celebration and everyone in Cana would remember that wedding Everyone would remember that couple and everybody would say we have never experienced anything quite like that event on that occasion now the bridegroom and the bride and the master of the banquet, they didn't understand. The servants did and the disciples did and were told that their response was this, that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This word glory quite literally means to be heavy, to be significant, to have weight like uh, uh, of your character, that you would be a significant person, you would be a weighty character, you'd be heavy. Now, uh, it's not physically to be weight, to be heavy in terms of how much you weigh, but you would be a person of significance and standing. And when we're told that Jesus revealed his glory, he revealed something of his significance, something of his character. And his disciples saw what he did and they did the natural thing. So today, if you're not yet a follower of this Jesus, Let me tell you what he has done. Let me tell you of the change that he makes in people's lives. Let me tell you of his power. Let me tell you of his compassion. Let me tell you of his love. Let me tell you of his mercy. And let me tell you that he not only can do the impossible, he continues to do the impossible. He continues to change people's lives. He continues to change shame into joy and celebration. And he continues to do in us and through us what we simply cannot do for ourselves. The disciples realized who Jesus was, and they placed their trust in him. They, they personally believed in Jesus. Faith is taking Jesus at his word. Faith is seeing the miracles of Jesus. Faith is hearing the preaching of Jesus. Faith is seeing his death and seeing his resurrection, saying, not only does that look good, but that's what I want. That's what I need. And that's what I'm taking today, that I need someone who can do this for me. I need somebody who can do the impossible because I need the impossible. I need joy that doesn't depend on my circumstances. I need hope that can not only help me today, but can take me into tomorrow and into, into next week. And Jesus is able to do more than we could ask and, and more than we can imagine. And this miracle in this small place with these unnamed people shows us something of his power, something of his glory, and something of the ability that he has to transform situations, to transform lives, and to give credit to others based upon what he himself has done. He's come to give us the best of the best. And as Christians this morning, we need to live lives that reflect this truth. And we need to demonstrate the reality of our relationship with him, by what we say, by how we live, by by the joy that we should be exuding. And if you're not yet a Christian, let me tell you that Jesus performed these miraculous signs for one reason. He performed these miraculous signs to point you to him so that you could believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And life in Jesus' name means having more than you have now. Having more than you have now and having it forever and forever. John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus came to give abundant life and Jesus came to give eternal life. This world can give you cheap pleasures. A gallon of wine for twelve ninety nine, but you wake up the next day with a headache. The pleasure and the joy that Jesus gives is substantial, is significant, and lasts forever and forever. So may God give you eyes to see and may God give you a heart that responds and may you be like the disciples when Jesus performed this first miraculous sign that His disciples put their faith in Him. May our faith be in Jesus. May our hope be in Jesus. And may we be part of this great kingdom where He has saved the best till last and He has given us the best of the best. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer today that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. It's our prayer today that you would give us ears to hear his words and that you would give us hearts that are moved by what we hear and by what we see. We ask, Lord, that we would represent Jesus wherever we go and that it would be obvious that we have a joy and a hope and a meaning to life that is not of ourselves but is of him. Lord, we realize that in this world there is sadness and sorrow. We realize that there is despair and darkness But we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have light, we have life, we have hope, we have purpose. It's our prayer that we would take to heart all that we have learned today. The words that we have sung, the words that we have read. We thank you that every prayer that is brought before you is heard and answered. And we commit to you, this congregation, we thank you for the vibrancy, for the vitality, for the young people, for the older people, for those who are students, for those who who are living here temporarily, and for those who call Dundee their home permanently. We remember, too, and uh, we commit to you, the Robertson family. We thank you for David, for Annabelle, for Becky, for Andrew, for Emma Jane, and we pray that in this time of trial, in this time of extremity, that they would know your blessing, your help, and your hope. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us that life indeed is unpredictable, but we thank you that you are predictable, dependable, reliable, steadfast, and sure. Enable us to receive that life that is eternal. Enable us to live that life that is abundant, because our prayer is in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solace-cpc.org Thanks for listening.